Welcome to the Own Your Time podcast. This is the host, Kyle Marcotte, and today we have a very special guest on. We have Michael Blanc. He's the founder of Nighthawk Equity. He controls $64 million in multifamily assets and has raised over $21 million. In addition to his own investing activities, he's helped students purchase over 5,000 units valued at over $215 million through his content and training programs. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, Kyle. Good to be here. Yeah, it's so amazing to have Michael on. He is a, a really awesome person. I would love for you, Michael, just to tell the listeners about your story, kind of how you got to where you are today. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm just so grateful that you're doing what you're doing because you're super young, which is awesome because I wish you were around when I was your age. Like I, I, didn't, I didn't realize I was an entrepreneur until I was probably in my mid-30s. And I didn't read Rich Dad Poor Dad until I was like 39. I don't know. It was like, I don't know, it was like in 2004, way late in life. You know, and so, you know, I, I was just taught to go to school and get good grades, which I did. And I get a job like that was that was the blueprint. And I never bothered to, you know, to think or, or to question any of that. And so now we have some more, much more interesting conversations with our kids. Our 18 year old is now, well, should you go to college? If so, why? Or if not, what else are you going to do? And so these are some real conversations that you have to have. And, I, you know, I just I would call, I would say I probably drifted through most of my life, not really questioning whether this is actually good or serves me or bad, distracts me. And people just don't talk about it because you don't question certain things. You just do certain things. You go to church, you go to college, you get a job, you, whatever, right? Whatever they tell you to do. You're like, well, well, why? Why should I do that? And it's, I think it's because people don't really think about what they want in life. They're not being intentional enough. Right. If, if it's like 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 you and I interviewed you on my podcast, you're like you have even tried it. Right. Because you were like, well, everybody told me to do it. So I tried it. But it's just I just couldn't make it work. It wasn't who I was. I want to go out on my own. It didn't feel right. And the, the main big exception between you and everybody else is you actually stopped for a while and you had probably had a conversation with yourself. And I'm like, hmm, maybe this is not the right thing, even though everybody around you was telling you to do another thing. And that's I think as a, as a young person the main challenge because you don't have the confidence yet in yourself. You rely on other people to tell you what to do, but that's not true, right? If you're 17, 16, 17, 18, 19, whatever, okay, you are old enough to start making your own, own decisions. You just, you just need role models. And I think that's the, the key missing piece is role models that are not 55 years old, right? Role models like, like, like you, role models nevertheless. And I think that's kind of the main difference. Yeah, fantastic. And and speaking about things that people tell you to do that maybe you shouldn't do, why why would you invest in real estate instead of maybe the stock market? I think everyone tells you stock market, stock market, stock market, but um, to you that's not necessarily the best option. So why is that the case? Well, it's it's like anything else. It's it's just that that's what everybody else does, and that's what you always hear about. You don't ever hear about anything. And worse, you go to your CPA or financial advisor and you say, "Oh, I heard about this alternative investment called oil." or syndications. And they're like, well, that's got a lot of syllables. What is that? Probably illegal, you know? And so professionals, I mean, friends, forget their friends and family. Friends and family think you're crazy, right? So you can't, you, and that's bad enough, but then you go to professionals and they're like, no, I don't think that's, that's going to work. And why do they say that? Number one, they don't know anything about it. Number two, they don't get compensated for putting your money into that thing. And so you really have to be careful who you get your advice from. Because someone says yes, someone says no. Well, who's the person saying yes or no? What is their perspective, right? If I'm talking to someone who's, who's invested in gold and oil and syndications and they lost their shirt and that and this and they made a lot of money, you're talking to a person like that 
and they invest in the stock market. Now, now whatever that person says has a, a much bigger perspective. And I've invested in all kinds of stupid stuff, like stupid stuff, great stuff, you know, and there's certain things that there's some fundamental flaws in the stock market. And there's certain things that all, other alternative investments uh, address in the, some of the things that are broken with the stock market. Yeah. So what are some of those things that are, that are broken in the stock market other than the gatekeepers being incentivized to essentially, you know, put you in investments that make them the most in fees, but what are some of the other just systematic issues with the stock market? I mean, there's many fundamentally, if you are the head of your household and you're trying to do some financial planning for you and your family, you're like, I, and you create your spreadsheets, which as you know, I love to do. And you create a spreadsheet for the next 30 years and your financial advisor is happily gave, able to give you these spreadsheets for free, right? If you sign up with them, and at, by the time you're done, you're, you're a gazillionaire on paper, right? The problem with that is it, it makes certain fundamental assumptions that just are not true. Number one is volatility. The stock market goes up and down as evidenced recently, as well as 2008. Now, if you plot the actual return of the stock market, which I did, it goes up 5%, up 7%, down three, whatever, up 18, down 19. If you do that and you actually plot the actual return, the average annual return of the stock market, it's like 7.4% to the last 25% because of the volatility. The, the volatility eats away your, your principal. So that's problem number one. And the financial advisors, when they say, oh, you're going to get an average annual return of 12%, may be true for the last three years, four years, five years, but it's not true over the life of the investment period. And so you don't get that compounding effect that you get in the spreadsheet. So that's problem number one. Number two, you got to pay fees. What they don't tell you is that 10%, whatever they give you in that spreadsheet is, is before fees. And depending on what you buy, if you're buying mutual funds, you're paying fees, sometimes up upwards of 1.5%. Add all the fees together, and now you're down from 7.4, I don't know my numbers found, down something like 6.7, right? And now you have taxes. What do, what do financial advisors or stockbrokers love to do? Sell stuff, sell and buy, sell and buy. The more I sell and buy, the more money I make. Yay, right? Sell and buy, every time they do that, they trigger a tax event, and you have capital gains. So you got to work that into your spreadsheet, which they don't, of course, do. So you work that in, right? Uh, now, the other thing that people don't know is, is inflation. No one knows about inflation. What do I care? But inflation is that your money is worth, by design, 2% less each and every year. That's the way the Fed wants it. And they call this growth. So when they have a you know, have growth of 3.1%, their actual growth is only 1.1%. 2% is them just creating more money and inflation to devalue your hard-earned money, right? So you factor that into your spreadsheet. By the time you're done, Kyle, your actual average annual return is like 4.6%. <clears throat> like that's your average annual return over 25 years. Like that is insane to me. Insane to me. Right. Yeah. Versus, for, yeah. So that, that's what's wrong with the stock. Not much, but just a few things. Yeah. Not, not much, but just a few things. And, and the one thing you did mention that I really want to touch on is the embedded growth obligation that our economy has, where essentially there is a growth obligation embedded into the fabric of our economy. And essentially when things don't continue to grow, then they kind of break. And this is being seen with the school systems right now. Essentially, if PhD students aren't becoming teachers at the rate at which that they want them to, and also they are also PhD students are cheap labor. That's another situation. And and this is a uh, this is a really deep concept that I, I encourage everyone to look up. A guy named Eric Weinstein really di dives into this. But basically, the economy is a situation where if things stop growing, then they start to break, and that's why there's a lot of incentives that are you know, maligned in the stock market and in a lot of other places. So definitely always, you know, verify 
where you're getting your sources from, verify and make sure that you understand the investments you're getting involved in. But that aside, how do you get started in real estate if you have no money? Because often the stock market's a good opportunity. If I only have like five, 10 grand, I don't have very much money. Uh, real estate's for rich people, right? And, and there's something to be said for that. I mean, if you go into syndications, you're dealing with, uh, you know, minimum investments of $50,000 plus. So if you don't, if you don't $50,000, you can't play, right? You're just not invited to the table. So that is, that is, that is an issue. Now, what you could do about that is you can actually pool your money uh, in investment clubs. And this is very, very common. Uh, you know, you and your, a bunch of buddies put together and you actually create an LLC for $125 and you put your money in that thing and you invest that money. So again, you know, the thing of not having your own personal money, it just stops right there because syndication is the, is the process of pooling money together to do something of greater significance. And this is a perfect example of that. So if you don't have 50, 50 grand, because you're 18 years old, you only have four grand, okay? Well, then create an investment club. And, and, and that does a, a variety of amazing things. First of all, it positions, positions you as an authority because now you might be 18 years old, but you get investment, you know, people with money tend to be slightly older. So now you're actually finding and, and vetting investments on behalf of older people. You're being very quickly positioned as, a, as, a, as someone authority. So then create an investment club. Yeah, that's a great advice. And even if you, you know, that's on the passive side too, as well, if you can start to figure out um, how to do syndications, that's kind of what I did. I was actually in student debt when I started. I had zero, I had negative money. So I love that excuse of that, you know, you need to be rich or come from a wealthy family or something of that nature. Um, but that's absolutely not true. It really comes down to education. And we live in an amazing time where pretty much everything you need to know is on the internet. There's people you can go to like Michael or myself who are going to charge you a lot less than college tuition and you can get education that's actually going to be functional. So it's just a really good situation um, to be alive in this time and we should definitely take care, uh, take advantage of it. So I would say, and my next question would be, well, why multifamily specifically within real estate? I know you focus on multifamily, but there's a lot of different avenues. So why multifamily? So kind of going back to our, uh, what's wrong with the stock market in comparison, multifamily is essentially addresses all of those issues. Uh, and one of them we did not talk about one major flaw of the stock market is no cash flow. Okay. So if I want to quit my job or not have to work again, cause I want to go work at a bar in Tahiti for nothing. <clears throat> okay. I can't do that with money in stock market unless I'm selling puts and calls and doing iron condors, which by the way, super fun, not very profitable, takes up all your time. But if, unless you're doing that, you want your investment to generate cash flow and, and syndications do that. Every quarter or month, you will get a check that's sent to you that doesn't eat into your principal. So that's a, a huge thing, right? Uh, number two is the volatility. We talked about the stock market. With, with uh, syndications, they, are, they, they grow almost compounded. They're, it's, it's whatever, 10, 15% average annual return on a typical syndic syndication. And that does, in fact, compound every single year. The main problem with syndications are really the one and only disadvantage is it's not liquid. I can't 18 months later say, oh gosh, I, I want to go on a world trip. I need my $50,000 back. And you can't call up there the GP and go, hey, you know what? Can you, can you sell that? And, and uh, market closes an hour. Can't do that. Okay. So that's the main downside. But the advantages far, far outweigh the disadvantages. And one of them is the lack of volatility and also the above average return. So a stock market has returned 7.4 over the last 25 years. Typically, our, our investments, and that's pre-tax, our investments return typically between 10 and 15%, oftentimes even much higher, where they are, the average returns are more than 18 to 20%, right? And that's over a series of five to seven years. So the returns are actually higher. Now, what about taxes? Okay, you make a bunch of money, you got to pay taxes, right? No, not really. So what happens is real estate is, is tax advantaged. 
the, the government wants you to own real estate. They want you to invest in real estate. They also want you to invest in oil, uh, an oil project. So that's also tax advantage. But while you're getting, while you're getting returns on your money, you're actually getting a taxable loss on your tax document, also known as a K-1. So you invest $50,000. I send you $5,000 every single year you can have a party with. And, and meanwhile, on your K-1, you show a $20,000 loss. And your CPA is like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. You lost all that money. You must be a really bad investor. Maybe better luck next time. And you're like, no, no, no. That's, that's all paper loss. That's called depreciation. And the government's allowing you to do that. And that's fantastic because now you have a loss on your own paper, yet you're making money. That's insane. Like, what, why would the government do that? The only reason the government does that is because they want you to invest in real estate. So now you're not even paying any taxes on your return either. That's also insane. What do we forget? Ooh, inflation. Okay, inflation. And it is, is as inflation goes up, your expenses go up, right? Which means rents go up, which means what? The value of your properties also go up. So as expenses and rents go up, the value of your property goes up. Therefore, it's an inflation hedge. hedge. So if, if we were to have a problem with inflation, we go from whatever, 3.1 to 7, 10. Well, rent's going up also. You know, so, and, and therefore, the, the, the value of the property is going up as well. So it's also a hedge against inflation. And last but not least <laughs> is how it performed in the last two recessions. Okay, Last recession, the default rate on multifamily was 0.4% of all government-backed uh, loans versus 4% on single-family houses. I mean, it was, a, it was a bloodbath, but multifamily was only 0.4%. Look at how it's performing now in, in, with COVID in place. I mean, collections are about even to where it was in, uh, before COVID. Wow, why is that? Why are banks uh, providing non-personally guaranteed loans at 4.5% for 30 years? Like, that's free money. The only reason it's so cheap is because banks think that the investment is, the risk is so low. So all those things together, the risk profile of multifamily is, is in amazingly low given the returns it has. So there you go. Those are some great points. Yeah, hard to argue with any of that. And um, that kind of segues nicely. You've mentioned COVID. So what is your outlook for the market on multifamily with the next couple of months and years with all of this uh, pandemic craziness? I mean, it's, it's always tough to predict what's, what's going to happen. I think uh, two months ago, we were really biting our nails. The biggest thing we were concerned about is that people would not pay the rents either because they couldn't or because they didn't want to. Because in the news, there's people, I'm not going to pay rent. You can't evict me anyway. Come and get me. That was our biggest concern and it didn't happen. And that was interesting. I have a, I have a theory of why that maybe didn't happen, but it didn't happen. Even people who lost their jobs for two, two reasons. I think because of the high degree of uncertainty causes stress in people. So the uncertainty around their health and their jobs is st unbelievable stressful. There's no question about that. Now, if I choose not to pay rent, I now potentially have a, a, an eviction hanging over my head. Why compound my problem? Why, why increase my stress level? So, so I think people just chose to pay that particular bill just because one thing they can control. That's a theory of mine. I don't know. But also there's a lot of government money that was flowing to people and particularly to the lower income side of the bracket. So they, imp they, the, uh, the, the unemployment benefits were increased by $600 a week. I think it was like 300, whatever, whatever it was. So $900 a week. And they chose that number because it was a median income of, of Americans. But the median doesn't mean 50%. A median just means that's where the most, you know, that's, that's, it's the median, which means that a lot more of them are actually earning a lot less, disproportionate amounts. So people who are, there's a lot of people earning a lot less than that. Now, all of a sudden, they're getting more money through unemployment than they did um, uh, working. 
which is kind of a disincentive, frankly. So it's, it's actually on that note, kind of a dumb program. But the, <laughs> the bottom line is this, that if someone lost their job, they did get help from the government, which was a blessing uh, that, they, that they, had, they had that. There's also the PPP program for contractors that allowed companies to still keep people on payroll. So what I'm saying is as misguided as it, as it is to print money out of thin air, time for another podcast, okay? It did actually, <laughs> it, to some degree, serve the purpose where people could actually pay their bills and that's kind of what, what happened and they chose to do that. So to, to, with regards to Outlook, you know, is the, will the money stop flowing at one point? Yes. Will the, will the government stop printing money? No, they're gonna keep printing money because it worked so great the first time and the time before that. And so I, I think that the government subsidies will, will not stop until this has passed. Uh, we also saw the unemployment rate start, starting to drop uh, as well. So, you know, is, I used to think, you know, two months ago, this is like going to be a V-shaped recovery. Obviously, that's not going to be like that in, uh, as, as well. But, but I think that the impact to multifamily, especially to other, uh, other industries like certainly retail and restaurants and travel entertainment, is going to be minimal in comparison. Yes, there's going to be a blip on the radar. It screwed up a bunch of our sales and, you know, the pipeline is dry and, ooh, you know, poor us. But really, at the, at the end of the day, our tenants still have a place to live. They can afford their rents because they were affordable in the first place. And the income is going to keep coming in. Yeah, that's a good point. And even like a doomsday scenario of them continuing to print money and devaluing the dollar, it's actually kind of okay for multifamily because as you alluded to earlier, the mortgage is going to stay the same. If the value of the dollar gets lower, then fantastic will pay it off even faster, right? So um, that's a good situation. And also people always need a place to live. So we have some sort of a somewhat of a hedge there. I mean, that's pretty a catastrophic situation if we were just to continue to print money and print money, but we would at least be, I think, well, better positioned than majority of other asset classes. So that's definitely a positive as well. Um, and I would like to, to finish with, with a question I ask everybody who comes on the show. And you've been in a myriad of businesses. I mean, software IPO, pizza franchises, all these different things. Um, what advice would you give a 20-year-old who's starting a real estate or business? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is be clear on what you want to do. And, and if you don't know what you do, make the, make the time to figure it out. That, that's like the biggest, the biggest thing. I tell, I tell our 18-year-old the same thing. Like I, if at the end of the day you decide to go to college, that's fine, but make sure you have a plan behind it. Now, could that plan change in 18 months? Yeah, fine. You know, plans change. But I, I really want younger people to, to really be clear about what they want in life and not just do the next thing that their parents tell them to do or what everybody else around them does. So college may be good or may not be good, right? It really depends on what you want to do. If you want to be an attorney well, or a doctor, you probably should go to school for at least a couple of years. Okay, so... If you, so if you love that, then that is the right path for you. If, if you want to get it, if you want to start your own business, whatever that is, you know, uh, you know, my 18 year old wants to, she, she edits videos for me. So she, she thinks, well, you know, I think I might be able to grow this in, into a business. Okay. Well, she still chose to go to college. She feels like that is going to make her a better person, well-rounded. It's going to allow her, whatever. Okay. At least I made her think about it. Okay. She's not just going, oh, because mommy told me to, or daddy told me to, or my, all my friends are going to a college. At least you're thinking about. It. So I'm saying, be be a little more intentional in your in your life, and and then really strongly consider building passive income. That's it, and that's really what you know what uh, Kiyosaki teaches in, in his book is the power of passive income. Really gives you options, and since you're young, you have all kinds of time to figure this thing out. But really focus your finances on passive income, and and there's there's different ways to get there. Obviously, the best one is obviously with real estate specifically with multifamily. It's just, there's, there's no vehicle 
that is that works for more people in a more replicatable way than that. I, I truly believe that. You know, house flipping is great. You make 30K, you're the man. All right, good job. But as soon as you sell that house, the money stops flowing. That is not passive income. That's a job. And, and this is why I love multifamily. The reason I love it also is you can be active and you can be passive, right? If you have money, great. If you, if you want to be active, you want to raise money, great. If you're good at marketing, then market the, you know, then help the operator market the, the property, whatever the, whatever the case may be. So, so really focus on, on not so much possibly a career, and there's nothing wrong with a career, but really focus on passive income because it gives you more options. And, and here's the other thing, Kyle, that you know, is that a lot of times a career gets in the way of, of, your, of your true potential. You might be the best writer in the world, but you'll never know because you have no freaking time to write that book because you're working so much. So it really gives you more options. And in my opinion, opens people up to live a, 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 their, their true potential. I totally agree. And I think that the reason we don't often do that as younger individuals and the reason I think I didn't do it till I was 20 was it seems like such a painful conversation to have with yourself to realize that, you know, potentially you're sitting, you're floating kind of aimlessly in this world that we live in, which is definitely, a, you know, it, it, at times it's, it, it's pretty demoralizing to realize like, hmm, I kind of am in full control of where I take this ship and my trajectory is directly impacted by the decisions I make right now. Um, but once you start to get comfortable with that, then you actually, your life becomes more in control. And over the long term, it's much more net positive because you can ignore that thought and kind of live temporarily in this happy place of, you know, kind of ignorance bliss. But eventually, you know, you hit 35, 45 and you, you wake up and you're in a corporate job and you have no freedom. And then that's more painful than just having looked at that you know, um, abyss at 20. So I think that, yeah, but how do you overcome that? Okay. So that's easy for me to say, uh, but how does, you know, because the problem is you're dealing with so much peer pressure and you're dealing with a, a relatively low self self confidence in yourself. So you have to make, you have to potentially make, not only is the conversation uncomfortable, you may have to make decisions that are going to be wildly unpopular with your parents, your friends, everyone around you. How do you overcome that? Yeah, so I have this thing that I call the easy way and the hard way fallacy. Um, and I think that understanding this fallacy and looking at the whole scope of your decision, similar to what you said about the stock market, right? If you look at a three year window, your decision's skewed. But if you look at the whole time period, your decision becomes more clear. And so if you look at hard decisions in quotations and easy decisions in quotations, like let's use a simple one, sleeping in instead of going to the gym at 5 a.m. That seems like the easy way is to sleep in, but if you actually look at the whole scope of that decision, when your goals are to be fit, you end up in two weeks feeling absolutely horrible about yourself. And the cognitive dissonance that I've experienced in moments like that, where I've wanted to do something like be in shape and I've slacked for two weeks, the pain of that is actually way greater than if I would have just woken up earlier that one day. So the easy way of sleeping in is actually much more painful when you consider the whole scope of the decision. So it's much more net negative. And if you understand those scopes of decisions and you understand that, hey, avoid it, like it's not an option to avoid looking into the abyss, basically. Like you start to realize like how absolutely like paramount it is to actually stare at that abyss and be like, I'm okay with it. Like, you know, there's no, this is actually the easy thing to do. Like you start to conceptualize it and realize like, this is actually going to save me a lot of pain. This is actually the most pleasurable decision I can make, even though it seems like it's not. Yeah, that's great. And again, you're being intentional. I think that's, that's the lesson. This might be intentional. Yes, it requires you to have an uncomfortable conversation with yourself. And it also requires an uncomfortable possibility decision. But if you're clear about what you want, it's, it's going to make it easier. 
Yeah. And also maybe even clear about what you don't want. Cause sometimes that's easier. Like for me, it was just, I was really clear that I didn't want the path. I'd watched my parents go down and everyone that I knew go down. Cause no one seemed happy to me. I, you know, I looked around and I'm like, none of these people seem very happy. I think I can do this a little bit better. Surely there has to be a better way. I don't want to be miserable for right. you know my existence. Right. So I almost didn't know what I wanted at some, to some degree. I just really knew what I didn't. And so maybe that's a good place for you to start as well. If you're, if you're in that situation. I like that. Yeah. So where can people find you online, Michael, if they want to get in touch with you and learn more about what you got to have? Uh, I'm at themichaelblank.com. That's written B-L-A-N-K, or you can just uh, Google apartment building investing. You should be able to, f- to find me. So we have our YouTube channel. We have our own podcast. Uh, I have a book called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. We have a live event coming up uh, called Dealmaker Live in July. Unfortunately, now virtual, but we're going to make the best of it. It's going to be awesome. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Put the link in the description of the episode if anyone wants to check out any of those things. And I highly suggest Michael's live events. Even when they are virtual, I'm sure there's going to be a massive amount of value. I know I learned a bunch from you when I watched you in, uh, in Denver. So I appreciate you coming on the show and, and adding a bunch of value to the listeners. Kyle, great for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course.